This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them. And hello, and this is Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirate Save the Whales, with a Robin Mob, a Robert Love, and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. And I'm Mob. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or good midnight. Wherever, wherever you may be. Wherever you may, uh, may happen to be. We're in Blackburn South, Victoria, yes. Australia, where 150 years ago... Well, not quite here, because Blackburn South is uh, quite a ways inland. But um, here in the city of Melbourne, 150 years ago, the Shenandoah had just been to visit. Had just been to visit and was, was heading off on its uh, journey up to up to the Arctic. But um, before before we um, get on to where the, the Shenandoah is now, well, there's a couple of things. First of all, Mark, this is our 21st episode. 21 today. Wow. How's that? That's, that's pretty good, although we, we did make a big fuss, bit of a big fuss last week about the, the 20th episode, so I feel we're having... But on the other hand, they are two, two big episodes in a row, so yes, 21 today, 21 today, we've got the key of the door, never been 21 before. Um, it's and there's what, probably a second verse to that song, but no one, no one actually knows it. <laughs> so this is, our, this is our 21st episode, and look... Um, we are we are getting downloads. We're we're very pleased with the way that the uh, the podcast is progressing. But we might take the time to give do a bit of bit of a shout out, a bit of advertising for um, our own podcast. So um, if you would like to like us on Facebook, we would have no objection. If you would like to get onto our website shenandoahdownunder.com and leave a comment or a question, that would be absolutely fantastic. Yeah, actually, questions would be good. And look, we can't guarantee we know the answers. But uh, as part of this very interesting process of doing this podcast, boy, we've been meeting some real experts, haven't we, we Rob? We, we absolutely had. We, we, we had our um, fascinating interview over the past two weeks uh, with Bio Shepherd from the... Uh, Civil War Roundtable of Australia. Civil War Roundtable of Australia. And next week... Uh, that, I must point out, that's the American Civil War Roundtable of Australia. There could be an English Civil War Roundtable of Australia. I don't know, with roundheads and... And uh, Cavaliers. Well, given we saw Nelson's Navy at um, at SeaWorks, reenactors. Yes, yeah, very yes. good chance. I'm, I'm sure that there'd, there'd be some um, some Civil War reenactors. I, I did note the other day on the website you wrote that um, Byard was from the Australian Civil War Roundtable, and I was thinking <laughs> the Eureka Stockade was kind of a Civil War, but it wasn't really uh, big enough to be a, be a Civil War. So I actually got onto Facebook and changed that one, Rob. Uh, okay, so, so you're pointing out to our listeners a, a mistake I made. That, well, this is that, all about attributions and uh, corrections, that, isn't it? That, that, that you corrected ten minutes after I made it. Uh, <laughs> it is that. Uh, well, yeah, and exactly, um, getting on to um, errors, attributions, amendments, uh, etc., um, we, no, we have had uh, some feedback from a reader. So, again, I'll, I'll finish. A uh, listener, actually. Uh, f- from a listener. Thank you. Um, thank you, Michael. Uh, so, yes, um, so thank you, um, listener Barbara, for this feedback. Uh, because we basically... Um, uh, we finished one episode with um, 
the the whole uh, thing about uh, Charlie, the, the poor stowaway, having to escape from the the ship. And we basically started the next episode with with a leap in the bound. Jack was free, so with outside Port Phillip Bay, um, the Shenandoah suddenly discovers that, that apart from poor Charlie and his three chums. There were another 42 stowaways on board. Fancy some, that. Fancy that. But Barbara pointed out that we, we never actually covered the ship actually leaving Melbourne. So I, I, I think we should, we should probably do that because I know that um, the, the original, the, the Ur source for us, the first source, which is Cyril Pearl's um, book, uh, which Michael is, is holding. Rebel Down microphone. Under, which I'm holding up to the microphone right now. Yes. This was published back in, uh, I believe it was 1970. First published in 1970, and I've got a first edition here in my hands, which you can still get online. Well, a, a rare first edition not owned by Barry Crompton. No, this was owned by uh, Jim, because it says, Happy Christmas and a bright new year. Love, Beryl. Oh. Is the uh, the inscription on this copy that I have? There you go. And uh, yeah, I picked it up online. I, I did actually have another copy, as you remember, Rob, some time ago that I got at the local library. It was Ooh. in their uh, their remainder, you know, for sale trolley for like fifty cents. And that's where I first picked up this story about the Shenandoah. I think we talked about that in we, in episode one. I think in. in the first of our 21 episodes. Uh, episode one, still still being very much online for people who haven't yeah. looked at it yet. The thing is, um, I lost the copy of that book. I, I don't know where it got to. And um, Barry Crompton of the Civil War Roundtable of Australia mentioned when we were at that conference a couple of weeks ago that you can still easily get copies of the book online. So I thought, well, I'll give it a try. And uh, yes, I managed to buy it online on eBay for, I think it was five ninety nine. And it's a great book. It's, uh, as Rob says, it's our uh, source. It's the first uh, book that we'd we'd approached on this topic about the visit of the Shenandoah to Melbourne. There have been other books uh, produced since. There have been books that have updated and uh, corrected some of the things that are in this. But there's still some real gold in here to to, to share. Now, now, again, uh, you you mentioned Barry Crompton. We are very much hoping to have Barry as as a guest uh, on this show uh, very soon, uh, maybe even uh, next week. Uh, Barry has one of the largest uh, collections of um, US Civil War uh, books pretty much anywhere. Yeah, and you know what? It's not just us saying that... um, the man who came out from the uh, Museum of the American Civil War yes. in Richmond, Virginia, he actually Sam, Sam, said, Sam, Sam Craighead, yes. he actually said that. So that's pretty impressive that, uh, yeah, and he would know, yes. wouldn't he? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so um, we are very much um, hoping to have Barry Crompton uh, as a guest uh, on our show. And, um, but it, it, we, we did not at any point in our show actually go into detail about how the Shenandoah actually left Melbourne. So, um, Michael, any, any interesting uh, points about that? Well, I think the the most interesting part was uh, we'd sort of left the Shenandoah in Melbourne up on its slipway yes, it was being, slip. being repaired. Yes. And it had to be there because um, they had to get in and fix the, the propeller. And the only way you could do that was on a slipway. This was at the point when uh, the police surrounded the ship because there were stories of uh, stowaways being on board and Charlie the cook and three other stowaways managed to slip away in a rowboat. They, they took one for the team. Yes. 
And that's pretty much because Charlie had been rumbled. Because uh, one of the crew that uh, Mr... Mr. Blanchard, who was the U.S. consul in Melbourne, had uh, written an, he had an affidavit from a crew member, one of the uh, John Williams. Yes, one of the uh, black crew members actually that had. Um, but the, the only the only um, black crew member at the time, because of the other one hadn't been recruited. Oh, okay. Or, well, he or maybe they passed in the corridor or something. Yeah. Well, he'd um, he'd been convinced to uh, jump ship in Melbourne and given an affidavit and had mentioned by name this Charlie the Cook. So obviously they decided Charlie and his three chums who'd uh, come on board at the same time, it was they were too hot to handle, so they had to leave. So they disappeared on a uh, rowboat and were later arrested. I think almost immediately. Yes. I think that the police were on the, on the lookout for those types of shenanigans. Yes. And uh, they were then uh, taken before a magistrate and um, they all swore blind, you know. They were on board the ship doing work, doing repair work, but they weren't signing on as, okay. as crew. Uh, eventually... Um, we had Blanchard trying very, very hard to make sure the ship wasn't going to go anywhere, and uh, Waddell, of course, wanting to uh, the exact opposite. So, so, so now, so, so I think on the the fifteenth of of February, um, the ship actually came off the slipway. It did. They they eventually stood down the uh, police. Yep. And they were going to send out the artillery at one point, yep. Yep. and there were two fatal problems with sending out the artillery. One is, of course, it would lead to a uh, desperate escalation of uh, what was going on. And the other is they found that um, where the artillery was based down at Williamstown, there was intervening high ground between it and where the ship was on the slipway, so they couldn't actually fire at it anyway. And besides, firing at your own port is probably not a good idea. I I, I, I actually think that, that... that the chances of an artillery engagement were, were somewhat slight. And, uh, yeah. Anyway. Uh, <clears throat> so when the police were stood down, uh, eventually it was decided that uh, the Shenandoah could come off the slipway. Waddell had actually threatened to yes. leave the ship where it was and travel back to England on the first available steamer and make uh, representations to the government there about violations of neutrality and mm-hmm. kicking up all sorts of diplomatic stinks. And I think the government here in Victoria and the poor governor, Governor Darling, decided that was all too hard. And in the end, having found that these four stowaways had uh, given themselves up or, as you say, Rob, taken one for the team... Um, decided, okay, we better let the ship go. So it, it was taken off the slipway, and it sat in uh, <clears throat> the roads, as you call it, under anchor just while they were trying to get things sorted well, out. I, I don't call it the roads. Don't what, you? What are the, what are the roads? Well, that's, isn't that where you uh, have all the ships sitting at anchor off, oh, okay. off, the, okay. uh, off the port, in, in Hobson's Bay, as it's called? And one of the problems they had there, and this is alluded later in uh, in Whittle's journal, is because they kind of did it in a great hurry, the ship was stowed very, very badly. Because uh, you had to take everything off the ship to get it onto the slipway. Yes. 
And then you had to take off the rest of anything else that was on the ship to get into its innards and so on. So I think it was all just stowed back on in enormous haste. Oh, dear, yeah. 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 Well, g- given the problems I've had in my time stowing bicycle panniers, I think... Um, you, can, you can empathise. I can empathise, yes. So, or, or, or packing a, a station wagon for a, for a family holiday, yes. It, it's... The analogy just <laughs> leaps out at me, Rob. So... They were um, <clears throat> they were getting things organised to get underway, but Blanchard had one final throw of the dice, yep. and that is he'd got some more affidavits from another uh, <clears throat> crew member. Oh, sorry, not crew member, another sailor who had uh, sworn that a ship was going to go out with. Um, some crew on board it to board the ship after it left the heads. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, so the evening uh, before the Shenandoah sailed, Blanchard made his final attempt, and he'd had a, a man called Andrew Forbes come to his office. And he'd, he told him that five British subjects <clears throat> were going to get on board the bark Maria Ross and they'd transshipped the Shenandoah once they left the heads. Ah, yes, okay. So what they needed to do is uh, they needed to get an affidavit signed by a magistrate. Yes. And then that could have possibly led to some sort of injunction and uh, a stopping, an attempt to stop the Shenandoah from leaving. Uh, But but I believe, Michael, there was a a very Melbourneian problem associated with... uh, uh, getting a signature from a magistrate. Yeah, the big problem was that Mr. Forbes had turned up about five o'clock. <laughs> yes. And they went off to uh, find the Crown Solicitor, yep. Mr. Gurner, to get... Uh, I, I wonder that there's a Gurner's Lane in Melbourne too this time. I would suspect, oh, I would very much a, suspect... A very famous racehorse was named after Gurner's Lane called, would you believe, Gurner's Lane, who won the Melbourne Cup. There you go. They actually came across Mr. Gurner, not in the lane, but uh, in the street. So he'd actually just left. He just left his office, and they said they wanted uh, they wanted this affidavit uh, witnessed. And the Crown solicitor said he was going off to his dinner, which I think is a polite way of saying he's off to the pub. The pub. There were plenty of other magistrates in the dinner, and it was none of his business, which is. Yeah, <laughs> pretty rough. So um, he he just went off. He said, I don't care. I want my dinner and I'm going to have it. There are plenty of magistrates around town. Go to them. And then he walked off. Yes, and I believe that, that, that Cyril Pearl had a very good line about this. Uh, as Cyril writes here, a wit later remarked that the Crown Solicitor's dinner was a very costly one for Victoria and yes. the British Empire. Um, in fact, a fifteen million pound dinner. Like, a like, twenty-eight and a half tons of gold. Remember, and a half tons of gold. mind you, that that is always assuming that the affidavit had been successful and and that the ship had been um, had been uh, actually impounded, which, which is not a sure thing. But certainly, um, having the magistrate absolutely refuse to take any action um, probably didn't go down too well in the court case. I would yes. So Gurner hurried off to his dinner, and I'm using air quotes here because <laughs> we do very much suspect and, and he was making, going to the pub. We're making glug, glug, glug noises, yes. And so Blanchard and had to then go and try and find a more sympathetic 
a magistrate somewhere. And <clears throat> they went to uh, the police station and they were told that they couldn't do it there and they went to Parliament House and actually saw um, the equivalent of the Premier of Victoria, Mr Higginbotham, and he basically said, it's not my job to do this. Go find the uh, police magistrate. Oh, so, so go back to where you've already come from. Yes. And when they finally got to him, and by the way, this is the city of Melbourne, particularly the centre of Melbourne now, is very well served by public transport. There are trams yep, yep. that you can actually catch for free in uh, the centre of the city that go crisscross hither and thither here, there, and everywhere. But back in those days, I suspect you probably had to walk. Or, or run. if you Or run, which yeah. they might have been doing. So they finally found the Metropolitan Police Magistrate, and he refused. He said, that is a matter for the water police. And the water police were based at the port in Williamstown. And Williamstown is, of course, across Hobson's Bay. Yes. So there are two options there. One is you could go round the bay and you could go on the train at this time or I guess you could go on horseback or, or walk and take a long time. The other option is you could jump in a boat and row across. Now, the big problem with this was uh, Mr Forbes, the man who had uh, squealed on the uh, the five men who were going to jump ship, he didn't want to go to Williamstown because he thought he'd be beaten up. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's an entirely credible uh, supposition. Yeah, yeah. So instead, <clears throat> poor Mr Blanchard had to take down what Mr Forbes said on paper and uh, Forbes Forbes just uh, high-tailed it. So <laughs> here's the problem. They then took it back to uh, Parliament House, this document, and, of course, by then, Mr Higginbotham had left because I suspect... He had gone to join Mr. Gurner at, and I'm using air quotes again, dinner. I, I think every magistrate in Melbourne was was hiding from Mr. Blanchard because I think they had they were hiding under the table with their fingers in their ears, going, "No, no, no, no! I can't hear you! I can't hear you!" I, I think so. There, there appears to be a fair bit of not wanting to do anything about the Shenandoah going on, um, and I can. I can understand with that how the, the, the court case after the war did not go in, in England's favour. Yeah, so I think you're right. I think pretty much they decided, look, we've got the four guys that have uh, more or less said um, that were caught red-handed. Red-handed or wet-handed, wet, wet yes. Wet-handed, whatever, escaping off the ship. That's That's got to be good yeah. enough. And then after that, um, and it's interesting that in a... Bitter dispatch to Washington, um, Blanchard actually wrote of the officials he was dealing yes. with in Victoria, there are eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. Yes. So yes. I think at this point, various various officials were putting their fingers in their ears going, da da da, I can't <laughs> hear you because this is all just too hard. The other interesting thing is there was a uh, colonial government in Victoria so, uh, Mr. Higginbotham, who uh, actually was the Chief Justice okay. of uh, the Supreme Court of Victoria, so the highest ranking uh, legal officer, legal officer um, he had made it very, very clear that um, the issue 
was something that should be dealt with by the British government, not the colonial government. Which was conveniently 10,000 miles away. Which was convenient. Well, there was the representative of the, oh, uh, the, 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 the Queen, the governor, yeah. so basically it all fell on him. And interestingly, the, the state, or the, not the state, the colonial government at the time, they all enthusiastically agreed because it really got them off the hook. So um, even though they might have been possibly even sympathetic to the cause, um, and at one point, in fact, the, the, the Premier of Victoria, Mr McCulloch, said that um, there was no actual evidence that the Shenandoah was really the Sea King, ignoring the fact that I think it said Sea King on, on, the, on the back of the ship. <laughs> Um, and was enthusiastically supported. This is very interesting, Rob, by Mr. Peter Lawler. Yes. Now, tell tell our listeners who he well, was. I think we've alluded to Mr. Peter Lawler uh, when we had the the the, um, uh, the episodes about the the ball in Ballarat. But um, Peter Lawler was the the leader of the Eureka Stockade uh, Revolt, which happened over about two days, admittedly, in in eighteen fifty four. And it was uh, it was over mining licences. Um, the the miners were being made to pay a pound for a monthly licence, which was more than most of them took out in gold. They had a big meeting, decided that they weren't going to stand it, um, built a stockade, and the next day um, were enthusiastically shot by the police. I think to the tune of sorry, by the army, to the tune of thirty five um, miners dead and uh, and six 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 soldiers. So. In, in a very, um, I don't know, I think Australian uh, way of things, Peter Lawler was taken to Melbourne, um, tried for treason. I, th- I think he must have got off treason because, uh, you know, he wasn't hung. Um, so I don't know if they were acquitted or just, just gently convicted. And 11 years later, um, when, when this occurred, when the Shenandoah incident occurred, he was an arch-conservative member of Parliament. <laughs> you know, I, I think... That says something about going out to the new world where you can go out, you can start a rebellion, and ten years later you're in Parliament. So he said it was wrong... With, 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 with one arm, by the way. He, yes, he, he was injured, arm. wasn't yes, he, at the stockade? He said, it, he said it was wrong to discuss the matter. The governor was the representative of the Queen, and the governor alone could deal with a vessel belonging to a foreign power. So the, the, the local government here enthusiastically wiped their hands of any, uh, any issue of dealing with the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Lawler there is being an arch-monarchist and showing his conservative credential, but also saying, we can do nothing, yes. yes. Now, interestingly, Waddell was not very yeah, happy. In fact, there's a wonderful line from, from The Onion from some years ago where, you know, short of doing something, nothing could be done. You know, so <laughs> short of actually getting off their asses, nothing could be done about the shit of dollar. So, um, interestingly, Cyril Pearl makes a, a, an observation that if neutrality means being equally unpopular with both sides, <laughs> the Victorian government certainly preserved its neutral status. <laughs> because Blanchard, who, you know, he had vehement protests and he was quite ceaseless about trying to get the Shenandoah stopped. And he got nowhere with them. And on the other hand, uh, Waddell, in his memoirs... Yes, he's very sniffy. He is very, very sniffy about how the Victorian government had been disrespectful and insulting. They had been disrespectful enough to catch him when he was breaking the law. Yeah, egregiously breaking the law. (laughs) So, eventually, uh, 
Governor Darling decided that uh, nothing could be done as well and the ship was allowed to leave. Allowed to leave. Um, the final interesting observation is that uh, the affidavits that um, Blanchard got from Forbes were worthless anyway because the five seamen that he had uh, ratted on had absolutely no intention of joining the Shenandoah and were sailing off somewhere else. They were sailing to a uh, another settlement called Portland. Um, which is also in Victoria, by the way. Yes, not very far away, and uh, swore blind that, um, you know, he was fitting them up. Well, that, that is the problem when, when you, as a... Um when you go out offering money to sailors. So there are all, always all sorts of problems when you go out offering money to sailors. But this is one that sailors will spin you a, a yarn to get to get your coin. And yes. It uh, looks like poor Mr Blanchard uh, might have been... Um, So we don't know. I I like to evocatively think that the Shenandoah steamed out of Hobson's Bay, firing, you know, a salute as it went with um, Mr. Blanchard and a waterman in a rowboat (laughs) desperately trying to row across to Williamstown to the water police at the same time. Now, I don't know if that actually happened, but... Uh, at least you've got to give your due to uh, to the, the the Melbourne consul, Mr. Blanchard. He did his best. And, well, uh, I will say this: Mr. Blanchard eventually made his country fifteen point five million dollars richer through his go, actions. Yes, you could say. Well, 28 and a half tonnes of gold. I, I think if you'd given him the choice between that and the Yankee whaling fleet, he would have chosen the fleet. I think he I think he would have. Or actually, if you really want to say it, we could say um, the Crown the crown solicitor, uh, Mr. Gurning. Yes. He's the one that... Uh, Gurner. Gurner. Mr. Yes. Gurner. He's the one that uh, cost them... So, so he, he lost more money than his namesake racehorse won. Uh, 100, 100 plus years But ago. on the other hand, he did get to go and have his, and again I'm using air quotes, dinner. Dinner, yes. I, I, probably dinner and water or dinner and soda. or uh, <laughs> With a lemon, a <laughs> slice of lemon. With yes. a slice of lemon. Well, uh, again, thank you very much to a listener, Barbara, for, for pointing out that omission, and uh, we've rectified that now. We're, we're 25 minutes into our episode, and... So we've had a 25-minute error and attribution, have we? Okay. Well, look, I think if I start going back through uh, all of our episodes and, and telling up all the times where we've said, oh, we must look at that later. Uh, so we might have a, a few episodes uh, later in the run where we, we catch up with all of them. But yes, but so this is a point we normally get at about minute three or four or something like that. But Michael, I have to say, um, where are we now? So... We've steamed out of Hobson's Bay. Yes. We've had the 42 uh, stowaways. Gosh, fancy that. What a shock and surprise appear on on deck. And then uh, the ship has immediately started uh, heading northwards because they are heading up to Alaska to yep. find the, uh, well, the, they, they, the American they, whaling fleet. They did not know that at the time. As of the uh, 10th, of, 10th of March, yep. uh, 1865... They are in the South Pacific, and they are not that far away from uh, the island of New Caledonia, yep. which uh, presumably was uh, called 
New Caledonia by someone pining for Scots- Scotland. And I've been to New Caledonia, yes. and I can tell you there's not that much difference, but uh, similarity between between the two places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, I have not been to New Caledonia, but I have to say I, I think the, the similarities between that and Scotland. I, I have been to Scotland. Or or does Scotland have palm trees and smoking volcanoes? Only in Glasgow. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. (laughs) Because uh, in between New Caledonia and another set of islands called the New Hebrides is whereabout they are now. New Hebrides... And and the New Hebrides also would be nothing like the old Hebrides. Well, that's what I'm saying. It it, it definitely has, because I've been there too, and it has uh, palm trees and smoking volcanoes, and it does have ferocious natives, or it did back then. So there's a similarity. Although I I guess you could also say that that, that New South Wales is, in fact, almost incredibly unlike South Wales in England. Yeah. Yeah, Yes. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. We could could, could go on all day. So um, in... Uh, Whittle's journal, they are starting to complain. Um, well, there's two things he's complaining about apart from the captain, which he seems to complain about at great length. But, um, they're complaining about the incredible heat. Didn't, yes, but mind you, incredible heat, didn't it get up to like 85 degrees Fahrenheit or something? That was in the, that was actually in the coolest part of the ship. So if it was 30 degrees in the coolest part of the ship, you're going to have to say... Uh, It'll be stinking. Yes. yes. Stinking up on deck. Okay. And uh, the other thing, of course, they're complaining about is a complete lack of um, any whaling ships to be seen. Yes. So they're a bit, uh, they're a bit concerned. Now, just before we wind up, I think we can, we can accurately say that this is the steps that uh, um, Governor Darling took back when the Shenandoah arrived in Melbourne. And it's a classic uh, uh, four-stage strategy that the British government has used in just about any crisis. Okay. And it's from Yes Minister. Okay, right, yep. In stage one, you say nothing is going to happen. Yep. In stage two, we say something may be about to happen, but we should do nothing about it. In stage three, we say that maybe we should do something about it, but there's nothing we can do. And in stage four, we say maybe there was something we could have done, but it's too late now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which I think the onion obviously later put that into one one form. Yeah, short of doing something, nothing can be done. Um, uh, oh dear me, yes, uh, I, I think uh, uh, yes. The, the, it, it was not a great moment in the history of English bureaucracy. It was uh, not their finest moment, no. Not their finest. So, so Michael, you're, you're saying. Um, the crew, the, the, the Shenandoah, one hundred and fifty years ago now, as in as in you know tenth of March, is is off the coast of New Caledonia. They they've seen no whalers. It's very hot. Uh, so is that basically all all that's happened for this week? Pretty much, yes. And a bit of griping about um, about the captain from from Mister Whittle. Yes. Oh, well, I'm, I'm very glad we had a, a twenty five minute uh, uh, correction. <laughs> Well, it was it was important, and I do I I do stress again. I'm now holding up uh, the Shenandoah, a memorable cruise, yep, yep. to point out that the um, chapter of the journal that we're drawing from now has been titled "Oh, the terrible, terrible monotony," oh, dear. because they're very concerned about not seeing any whalers. Okay, well, well, um, it, 
perhaps lucky we didn't have an entire episode about terrible, terrible monotony because <laughs> I'm, I'm sure we could have we could have riffed off that. But um, yeah, going back to Melbourne to, to some ex- excitement, and um, when we have more terrible monotony uh, in, in weeks to come, that is when we'll be getting uh, expert guests in or answering reader questions or you know any any one, one of a number of things. So, um, but uh, yes, I, I think. It's time to wind up now, so um, can I just say that this has been the Shenandoah Down Under or Confederate Pirates Save the Wild with Rob and Mob. I'm Rob. And I'm Mob. Tally-ho. Tally-ho and ahoy.